Welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ellie. And me, Ben. And hello to all of you lovely listeners out there. Yes, and hello to anybody who's coming to the podcast for the first time from our new YouTube channel as well. Oh, yes. Yeah, we've got, what, two videos? We just made another one today because we've been busy digging. Goodness, so much digging. There's going to be the whole winter. <laughs> yeah, we have mentioned it a few times on this yeah, podcast yes, before, but yes. the allotment is up and running. And you can go ahead and check out our videos. We'll put a link in the show notes. But we're called The Wild GDN on YouTube as well, aren't we? Yeah, but also, if you're not interested in watching us dig, then uh, we are also going to be making videos about some of the things we talk about in this podcast. So when we talk in loads of detail about some of the native plants, sometimes we would love to show you a video on it. So that is the plan. Yes, but let's do our sightings first of all. Yeah, we've had a pretty good few weeks since we last recorded, uh, but I think the most exciting was the starling flock that were just absolutely gorging on cordyline berries in a front garden. Fascinating. I've never seen that before, but on posting it on social media, because we actually took a video, I did see that on various other bird groups that other people have starlings visiting their cord lines for this specifically and it's, it seems to always be starlings as well which is quite interesting yeah well i mean they just go around in flocks don't they the the thing that a lot of birders will look out for is the huge murmurations that happen and we will be going out to hunt down one of those murmurations around nottinghamshire because there's quite a few spots aren't there and we yeah, saw some really good spots oh my god it was like it was probably the highlight of my winter last year that that murmuration we saw at langfield lowlands the nature reserve phenomenal just the sound of the beating wings going overhead was just it, it was actually quite moving wasn't yeah. it really a beautiful thing something slightly less beautiful which i need this to be verified but there was a dead pigeon on a path I'm not going <laughs> to mince my words right and i sort of wandered in uh, up to it and noticed that there was a red admiral uh, butterfly that yes. was hovering around the dead pigeon i did wonder whether they do actually feed on carrion like the purple emperor butterfly does yeah we did have a look online and couldn't see anything for red admiral no not specifically but i don't know what else it would have been going for no i mean it was this is a bit gruesome but you we know it was either it. eating the meat or it was drinking the blood oh i mean it is almost halloween so <laughs> that's right <laughs> <laughs> it was just being uh yeah topical <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know because i don't know what else it would be going for it's not eating the feathers is it no no and it, it wasn't laying its eggs on the body or anything like that so so i don't know well lots of great protein in there so who knows if anyone else does know more then please do get in touch but this is just purely from our observations and you know like the starlings on the cordline berries if you've seen anything in your garden that you think isn't as documented if you like as other things and do get in touch because we always love to hear like strange uh, wildlife and plant interactions we always talk about native plants being better but some of the time it's just that you know it's just not been noted what non-native plants animals are using yeah. and the one that you often talk about is pampas grass yeah quarteria yes nice i've forgotten that one <laughs> yeah. yes points but then you what was it goldfinches you saw no it's a sparrow a male sparrow sparrows eating seeds though yeah no yeah. just didn't didn't consider that obviously they're those are seed heads and they must be really great for birds but yeah it was busy eating from it so yeah, yeah fascinating yeah so there must be loads of stuff out there that all we need to do is watch and see what's actually going on in our gardens. Yeah, all of us can go out there and observe and uh, yeah, do get in touch if, you, if you're particularly interested in something you've seen. Coming back to gardens, well, we, we just wanted to include in our sightings some of the plants that we think are looking good. 
when yeah, they're out and about. Definitely. And we actually had an email a couple of weeks ago from somebody asking about plants that are good for providing food for pollinators and things over the autumn and winter and number one that we've got in quite a few of our own gardens but we also see around often as a hedging plant is abelia yeah i it's one of those plants that i think i walk past quite often and it's only in the last year or so that i've really appreciated how beautiful it is really glossy small but very glossy leaves which in the sunlight just it's just phenomenal even when it's not flowering yeah and then white and pink flowers which is absolutely covered with. And we were seeing them flowering down in Wisley, the RHS garden, what, three months ago? Yeah, yeah. And they're still flowering now. Yep, you know, they just go for ages and ages and ages. And the same is true of Escalonia that is still flowering now That's in some true. of the gardens yeah. that we've got. And coming into flower now is Eliagnus. Well, it's been in flower for a, a few weeks, I think, where I've seen it. But the smell from an Eliagnus flower is just out of this world. I didn't, I always forget actually, it's another thing that I forget until it starts flowering. I'm like, what on earth is that amazing smell? But I mean, this is really unglamorous. I was just cycling along a really busy road in Nottingham, full of traffic and, you know, fumes and whatever. But actually the, the scent of this Eliagnus hedge just alongside the road actually overpowered the smell of petrol. It was, yeah, very, very strong, beautiful yeah, and because in it's, gardens. And it flowers now. I think because people grow Eliagnus because it's an evergreen shrub. And quite often with these shrubs, they just get pruned over once a year. And if you went over an Eliagnus and pruned it in the middle of the summer, then you'd be cutting off all that wood that would be flowering now. So, yeah, if you do have an Eliagnus... Uh, uh, oh, by the way, we'll put you know links to all of these plants that we're talking about into the show notes. But if you do have an Eliagnus in your garden, try not trimming it over one year. Um, or if you're going to do it, do it really early in the spring so it has time to grow back up and flower. And you'll be amazed with the scent that you'll get. Indeed, yes, it does pay to prune things at the right time for yeah. that reason. Yeah, and the last one that I was going to talk about, I think you've seen a couple more, is something we saw at Chelsea when we went down to the Chelsea Flower Show. And this was a new tree to us. It's a, it's a, a big shrub, small tree. Mm. I don't know how it would grow in its natural habitat, but this is called Heptacodium myconioides. Very good. Yeah, it's lovely because it's flowering now and it's quite rare to have trees. That You get more shrubs flowering now, but it's quite rare to have trees flowering now. Yeah. And it, um, we looked it up after we saw it and it's recommended quite a lot for planting in small gardens. Yep, fantastic for late pollinators. And it did it smell? I can't remember. It didn't did it, smell. It didn't smell, but it was in flower. So very pretty. And if it's good enough for Chelsea, then I think it's good enough for... A... <laughs> I think Chelsea is too good for us. <laughs> <laughs> Now, in this episode, we're going to talk all about hedgehogs because it's just come around to that time of year when they're settling down for hibernation. They're going to have their nap for the winter. And our native plant of the week this week, Ellie, is... The teasel. An absolutely amazing plant for wildlife with a brilliantly interesting natural history as well, which we've been finding out about. But before we that, let's talk about the news. Yep. Starting with mine. Bad news, actually, this time, but it's important to talk about this sort of stuff. You might have heard us talk about a lot of these different projects that charities run which are involved in citizen science, trying to get people out recording things in their gardens that they see. And the Butterfly Conservation do one of these citizen science projects called the Big Butterfly Count, where they just get gardeners to go out, 
count how many butterflies they see over an hour or over a day. I can't remember the exact details of this one. 15 minutes. Is it 15 minutes? That's what we Is that did. It? Yeah, yeah. No, we did it. You can remember that. It's no, just in the yes. Summer. You do 15 minutes, but you can do, you do the 15 multiple minutes times. multiple times. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah, right. That's yeah. it. Yeah, that, oh, that's right. Yeah, we went and did it under some power lines, didn't we? Yeah, as you do. Yeah, <laughs> but it was the most amount of dragonflies we've ever seen in our lives. Yeah, it's a shame it wasn't a dragonfly count. Yeah. Not uh, that we'd have been able to count them. There were hundreds. There were so many. Yeah, amazing. Anyway, anyway, back, back, to to, back to butterflies. Back to butterflies. Yeah, the, the results of the big butterfly count have come out. The devastating news is that overall butterfly numbers have dropped to their lowest level in 12 years, according to this study. And this follows declines over many of the last years. We just thought we'd read out this uh, this sort of quote from uh, Dr. Zoe Randall, who's the Senior Surveys Officer at Butterfly Conservation. And she said, This year's results show that the average number of butterflies and moths per count is the lowest we've recorded so far. On average, people recorded nine butterflies or moths per count, which is down from 11 in 2020 and down again from 16 in 2019. More counts are undertaken and submit, submitted year on year, but it seems that there are fewer butterflies and moths around to be counted. So what she's saying here, and something to add into this, is actually more and more people are taking part in these surveys, and they had the most people looking out for butterflies that they've ever had in the last year. So actually there's many more eyes looking for the butterflies out there, but it's just they're seeing less. So sad. And as we said before, I think that all the Lepidoptera are considered canaries in the mine with regards to the environment because they all have such specific life cycles and they all rely on such specific conditions that small changes in things like temperature or when the seasons arrive and things like that rainfall means it has really huge knock-on effects on their populations and that's basically what we're seeing isn't it? Yeah well I mean there could be all sorts of reasons for the decline they just sort of gave general reasons you know in the in the press release for this. But, you know, it's habitat loss, habitat change, climate change is a particularly big one for butterflies. But we're going to go on to Ellie's news now. And one other driver of declines of all sorts of insects is the use of pesticides, which obviously we would encourage everybody not to use them. And so... Encourage? Well, we're going to tell. Demand. (laughs) Come on, stronger language than that, please. Okay. Well, anyway, (laughs) the good news to follow on from this is that people seem to be waking up especially retailers to the fact that they shouldn't be selling these products right so you've actually got some news about some of these companies that have started stopping to sell them exactly and i will also just add that populations of insects are capable of bouncing back because they have such short life cycles so all these little collective changes like if you and your neighbors stop spraying things off then over a population of gardeners, then that really can make a difference. But yes, my news is that the co-op has now removed all high-risk synthetic pesticides from its gardening range. And also Waitrose is committed to follow suit by the end of 2021. Now, loads of people who aren't always in their garden, always gardening, will often buy products from supermarkets. So the advertising of these products is usually enough to convince people to buy them. So the fact that these huge retailers have just stopped altogether or will be stopping is a really, really fantastic move. Yeah, if you go to our local supermarket, as soon as you walk in the front door, often they're selling compost and 
pesticides. How to kill things, yeah. basically. And it's always got this huge sign over the... Oh, wait, shall I mention the name of the supermarket? Well, we shop in Asda. We shop well, in we Asda. Don't, we shop as little as we can. The, well, the sign above all of these horrible pesticides and herbicides, all the isides is love your garden and I cannot make those two things match up no, in my I head. But anyway, yeah. I'd also really quickly like to congratulate the co-op for for going completely peat-free with all of its compost as well as this move to not using synthet- or selling synthetic pesticides. Yeah, and this isn't some sort of plan for the future. They've done it already. Yeah, yeah no yep. peat compost left in the co-op. And I probably don't need to, you know, preach the converted, maybe, but the synthetic pesticides are the most damaging pesticides out there. And although organic pesticides, I say this in inverted commas, are also unsafe for general use, it's a great step in the right direction. So we really do congratulate them. And I want all of the other supermarkets to follow suit. The Pesticide Action Network, and for any of you listeners who have never heard of that, then please, I urge you to go to their websites because it is a fantastic organisation. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. They have been campaigning on this issue as well as the wider issue of pesticides uh, and and human use of them. And they've put together a web page where you can actually send an email to the bosses of all the major supermarkets who haven't made the same pledge. It's essentially just asking them all to ban these synthetic chemicals from their shops so that is something all of us can do and i think that they can't ignore thousands of emails so that would be fantastic if you can spend a couple of seconds doing that yeah you can actually on their website for this letter you can actually tick the shops that you actually shop in yes so and then it sends it to the ceo's office of you know whatever that supermarket is yeah, so well done Co-op and Waitrose, but we're still looking at Aldi, Asda, Lidl, Morrison, Sainsbury's and Tesco, all the other massive names. And if all of them made the same commitment to not sell this, imagine all of those gardeners not just not being able to buy them. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. going to have such a huge impact and hopefully see some re- reversal in the numbers of uh, butterflies and moths out there. Our main topic for this podcast is edgeogs. Edgeogs. You got to say it like that, haven't you? I don't well, know why. you have after you've seen Pam. Airs, oh yeah, a poetry show. Yeah. Oh, I hope that I hope her poem is actually on YouTube. If it is, we'll put a link. It up. definitely is. It definitely is. Yeah. We thought we'd give some uh, sort of general natural history about the hedgehog. There are seventeen species of hedgehog across five genera, and hedgehogs uh, are part of a group that also includes. I think they're called moon rats. Oh, yeah, something like that. So anyway, like they're cool this, kind of rat. Yeah, it, well, imagine a, a, a spineless hedgehog. Yeah, they they basically look the same. They've got the same snout. Fur instead of spines? Fur, or, yeah, oh, no spines, oh. yeah. So there are all these species and they occur throughout the world. But the species found in the British Isles and across lots of Western Europe is called Erinaceus europaeus, also known as the European hedgehog. So it's the sort of animal we all know about, but sadly, which we see less and less often in the countryside as numbers are in steep decline. Absolute freefall. But before we go on to how to help them in our gardens, I thought I'd take a minute to talk about how amazing they are. A typical adult hedgehog is somewhere between 20 and 30 centimetres long and can weigh up to two kilograms. Hefty. Yeah, that's a sturdy hedgehog and has between five and seven thousand spines. These spines are actually modified hairs and are made out of the same material as human hair, which is keratin. 
and these spines, just like human hair again, are continually replaced over a hedgehog's lifetime. I never knew this before I was doing the research, but you can get albino hedgehogs and blonde hedgehogs, which are actually fairly common, and on the Channel Island for Alderney, around a quarter of all the hedgehogs are blonde. Oh, that's very sweet. Hedgehogs are found right across Britain, although they're less common in Ireland, but thrive particularly around complex habitats with a range of scrub, open ground and woodland. I mean, if you imagine, uh, well, the name hedgehog comes from the fact they like to snuffle around the, the hedges at the edges of fields. And this sort of complex habitat is actually quite similar to our own gardens. You know, if you think of what we have, we have shrubs, flower borders, you know, might have overhanging trees, hedges nearby. So that sort of complex habitat is something that we can all actually achieve at home. But one garden isn't enough to support a hedgehog because an individual hedgehog, despite not being particularly territorial, they don't really fight over territories. Oh, that's interesting because I I know they roam, which you're probably going to mention this, they roam quite far, don't they? But I thought, I would imagine they'd have territories. They don't, no? They're not territorial, but they do have a range between 10 and 20 hectares in size. And an individual hedgehog, researchers have actually stuck little radio trackers on them. And they've shown that a a single hedgehog can travel up to three kilometres in a single night. That is just mind-blowing. Yeah, that's for something with legs around seven centimetres, something like that. So, like little trotters, my goodness. Yeah. Reminds me a bit of you, Ben. You've got quite (laughs) short legs and you can walk quite far. (laughs) I'm covered in spiny hairs. (laughs) Yeah, you're certainly hairy. Yeah. (laughs) moving on well the reason they're um traveling that can be because they're searching for a mate but also just generally because they're searching for food and the most important food sources for hedgehogs are worms beetles slugs caterpillars earwigs and millipedes so that is they have a really quite broad range of things that they'll they'll eat uh in their natural habitats is that in order of preference a worm's their favorite no just generally those groups yes if you go on the british hedgehog preservation society they have a i can't remember what what, exactly what the makeup is now but they actually have a pie chart which shows what their diet is mostly consisting of yeah so you can go ahead and check that out now you'll see hedgehogs feeding throughout the season that they're active and that's generally between april and late september or october and for part of this period that's usually in may and june we get what's called the rut so that's the (laughs) same thing basically as deer Um, and that's the greatest period of mating activity and this mating process is quite something Uh, so i'm going to read from the hedgehog street website where they say males attempt to woo females in lengthy encounters that involve much circling and rhythmic snorting and puffing oh it also sounds like you (laughs) (laughs) sorry couldn't help it was too obvious (laughs) Is that too much information, everyone? I'm just going to let him carry on. Shh, I'm staying quiet now. <laughs> this is going to be hard to edit. I might just have to leave this all in. Um, anyway, right. So, yeah, snorting and puffing. And the commotion, this is still part of the quote, the commotion attracts rival males to the scene and courtship can thus be interrupted as interlopers are confronted and rival males square up to one another, headbutting and chases are not uncommon. So yeah, they're not territorial, but during the mating period, they will fight over a, a, an individual mate. I wonder if there are uh, wildlife photographers out there that hunt this down as much as they might hunt down the, the rut of the deer. Yeah, I don't think it's got the same. I don't know if people 
sort of dress up in plus fours and to- go marching around the moors looking for well it wouldn't the be the moors rut. it would be other people's back gardens oh, can you imagine yeah. <laughs> <laughs> second part of this quote they say the actual process of mating is a delicate operation the female adopts a special body position with her spines flattened as the male mounts from behind radio tracking studies have shown hedgehogs are promiscuous both males and females often have several different mates in a single season. Oh, what's the point in all the rutting? Goodness. Yeah, they show this... off and then they just nip I was off gonna say, <laughs> an you... affair with somebody else. This is the dark side of the hedgehog. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm loving it, but yeah, who knew? Once mated, hedgehogs give birth to four or five young, of which typically only two or three survive. Hoglets, as they are known, spend about a month with the mother that's in the nest and during that period they'll be drinking milk and after that month they go out with the mother for about 10 days and that's foraging practice so they'll go and watch what the mother's teaching them that they can eat you know sort of hunting techniques all that sort of stuff and after that 10 days the young will then head off on their own to feed up and prepare to hibernate that first winter and the hibernation is also fascinating. They're one of the few truly hibernating mammals in Britain and do so between October and April. But that does depend greatly on the weather and they do go into this hibernation state when the weather starts to turn cold. And we were up at the allotment today in, well, I was certainly in shorts and a t-shirt yeah, because it's, been... it's so, so warm. And, you know, although it's nice to be out this time of year in a t-shirt, really lots of animals are struggling with the fact that the 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 seasons are changing and this sort of cold weather isn't coming so you know certainly this year i wouldn't be surprised still to see hedgehogs out and about fully active during this time now they will stay active feeding and waiting for that temperature to drop uh, when they'll actually start to hibernate and disturbing hedgehogs during their hibernation can be really dangerous for them but you often hear people say, oh, oh, I saw a hedgehog in a camera trap in January or February. And I was surprised to find out that while you definitely don't want to disturb a hedgehog nest, they will actually wake up once or twice over that hibernation period and move nests. They'll actually go and create a whole new nest. And I guess the main reason for that is that they, they're just getting, I don't know, wet, I guess, and they're, they're just no good anymore um, in terms of keeping them warm. So yeah, don't be surprised if you have a camera trap or something out in your garden and you see, you know, just maybe once or twice a hedgehog go past, they're probably just moving nest. Now, the ideal hibernation spot is somewhere dark and safe and with a regular temperature. So you can go out and buy hedgehog houses, but they are perfectly capable of making their own nests. And yeah, so we've seen two of these in the last couple of weeks. Ben's become the hedgehog nest spotter. and We've been really lucky to see two and you've obviously pointed it out to me and they're not like I imagined they would be actually. They're not, the ones we've seen have not been that much bigger than the hedgehog. And it obviously just a, a, you know, pile of sticks or leaves and just, it's just a massive, what just looks like leaf grass. grass. It just looks like a pile of grass. Yeah, it was really fascinating to see. We didn't know whether there was actually hedgehogs, where there were hedgehogs inside, but. Yeah, well, one, I was doing some work for my grandma. We were down there and there was one built in the middle of a a flower border. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But this plant that was coming over the top was shielding it. And it was only because I was cutting back a shrub above that that I actually looked down and saw it because it was so well camouflaged 
And the second one we saw, again, was in a customer's garden, and that was right at the base of a pyracantha hedge, yeah. which is a really good place to be because it's a spiky hedge. Yeah, you yeah. Know, so it provides it a lot of protection, I guess. Well, exactly. And uh, it's undisturbed because, you know, we're not rootling around in a pyracantha no, hedge very not often. often no. Not if we're feeling wise anyway. <laughs> no, and, it, you know, to be undisturbed, you'll often find them um, actually building these nests under log piles or even uh, under decking. Or under a shed, you know, if they can actually get under there. They're just looking for somewhere out of the way where they won't be disturbed. So ideally, you want to make your garden full of these sorts of little spaces that they can crawl into. As I say, because they're perfectly capable of making their own nests. And we should be doing all we can in our gardens. Because the sad truth is that over half of all hedgehogs in the countryside and over a third in urban areas have disappeared since the year 2000. And the reasons for this decline are really complex. So instead of going into the sort of the big picture of why they're declining, I thought we should talk about what you can actually do to help them in our gardens. More solutions. Yes. Yes. First things first, put the slug pellets in the bin. Slugs are a major food source for hedgehogs. So without them, hedgehogs don't have as much to eat. And in extreme cases, hedgehogs have been killed through metaldehyde poisoning. And that's the the particularly nasty slug pellet that is being eventually banned, but is still for sale. And people might just have knocking around in their in their garden so sheds. It was banned, then it came back because of horrible lobbying. And then now hopefully it will be banned again. Yeah, it is, is being banned idea? again. It is yeah. being banned again. Yeah. Coming back to the nest, don't be too tidy. All that twiggy growth and the leaves that fall over the autumn is perfect nest material. Yes, if you've got a lawn, it's really good to get the leaves off because, you know, it can kill the grass off if it's too thick. But in your borders, there's absolutely no harm leaving leaves as they fall because those leaves will be collected by the hedgehogs. And remember, if you are having a bonfire anytime soon, a hedgehog could well already be under that pile of logs because that's exactly the sort of place that they would like to go and nest in you know we're coming around to bonfire night so there's no point there's no harm sorry in having the bonfire just make sure you move the bonfire before you actually set it on fire yeah this is very standard advice but i do honestly feel like it's forgotten over generations and people I, just yeah, stop. it's easy to forget yeah so if you if you've got a friend or a family member that's having a bonfire then it is really worth just saying it you're not necessarily teaching your grandmother to suck eggs because lots of people do forget this so yeah, yeah. i mean you li- you only have to move it one meter to the side yeah. you're just trying to get a look at the bottom exactly yeah. and, and uh, because they're so well camouflaged you can't just have a look At the bottom, you have to move the whole pile. Now, because hedgehogs have such a large range, if your garden is surrounded by fences, do go ahead and cut a hedgehog hole in any fence that leads to another garden or into the wider countryside. The hole should be around 13 by 13 centimetres, which is quite specific. Um, It's about the size of a CD case. And that is sort of the the ideal size because it's usually big enough for a hedgehog to, to walk through. But it's generally too small for cats dogs or other other pets to make use of and if you're friendly with your neighbors you know it's great to cut a hole into your neighbor's garden but encourage them to cut a hole into their neighbor's garden and if you can get the whole street involved and we we have a customer that does just this she's like a wildlife ambassador for her whole street and it's a long street as well in you know quite central nottingham and I couldn't be prouder of her. She She's not afraid just to knock on her neighbour's doors and say, are you aware that you've got hedgehogs? Please, could you consider doing this? And it all helps. Yeah, well, she knows because she's got one of these camera traps and she's seen them coming into the garden, you know, and after that point, it was just, you know, whatever she can do to help. Yeah. 
Whatever the time of year, a bowl of fresh water is great for hedgehogs, but all sorts of other wildlife too. And if you have a pond which hedgehogs can drink from, then just be sure that on one side of the pond, you've got some sort of slope or you've put in bricks or sandbags or whatever, just so you know it's easy for a hedgehog to crawl out. They can actually swim. They're good swimmers, so they'll swim to the edge, but then they just get tired. Um, so yeah, just make sure you can put sticks in or, as I say, in any way that you can build up some sort of a bank on one side of your pond. And as we come round to hibernation time, if you wanted to put down some supplementary food, just be careful about what you put out. It was it used to be recommended to put out things like bread and milk, but that's a big no-no because hedgehogs are actually lactose intolerant. Instead, you should put out meat-based cat foods and biscuits or even specialist hedgehog food, which you can find around in pet shops and things these days. But do remember that this is only ever a supplement. You cannot replace, you know, the sort of the full range of nutrients that they need. So a vibrant garden ecosystem full of beetles, earwigs, worms, you know, you name it. That's always the most important thing is to build up that ecosystem within your garden. So, you know, talking about the supplementary food in the hedgehog houses you can buy, you cannot replace a a garden full of shrubs and flowers and worms with these things that you can go and buy. They can help, but they should always be the secondary thing that you do. First is always to plant more plants and just make your garden generally better for wildlife. And all of you that are listening to this podcast, hopefully are in the process of doing that. Yeah. (laughs) Plant more plants. Finally, if you find a poorly or a dead hedgehog, here's what you can do. If you see a hedgehog that looks dazed and confused or is lying out in the open air sunbathing, then it could actually be suffering from hypothermia. And if you do find a hedgehog in this state, then you can do something for it at home. Get yourself a hot water bottle, fill it with hot water from the tap, not boiling water, and then get the wrap that um, hot water bottle in a towel, put it in a box and then pick up this hedgehog and put it on top and that will keep it warm. Now you need to remember that if you're doing this, wait until that sort of water bottle doesn't feel warm anymore and then you need to replace it with fresh warm water and hopefully this hedgehog will start to recover and while it's in the box, you know, warming up, then give the British Hedgehog Preservation Society a call and they'll give you advice on what to do next and their website is britishhedgehogs.org.uk and their phone number is 01584 so you can go ahead and call them and they sort of have a helpline that will give you all the advice that you need and in the sad case that you actually find a dead animal it's really important that we have an idea overall with what sort of diseases are going around in the hedgehog world in the in the hedgehog community and we've talked about this organization before but the garden wildlife health project which is being run by the zoological society of london that's london zoo they are studying hedgehog diseases in the wild so if you find uh, a dead hedgehog the advice is to pick it up with gloves on put it somewhere safe and contact the garden wildlife health team and they might actually ask you to send it in but they'll they'll give you full instructions for how to do that once you've contacted them. Yeah, it's a really, really important organisation and it's helping track all sorts of wildlife. So if you see anything that's looking a bit sick, it's always good just to report it to them. Yeah, birds especially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's loads of fantastic advice. If you see an animal generally that is looking poorly, on their website, they've got brilliant resources with um, ID sheets, you know, really great photos. You can go and sort of work out what is actually going on. A positive to end on though, Some good news is that hedgehog numbers in urban areas actually appear to be stabilising. 
which could in large part be down to gardeners being more aware of hedgehogs and doing their bit to help out. If you want to know more about hedgehogs, then do check out the Hedgehog Street website and that is the probably the number one place to go because it's sort of a it's a joint venture between the British Hedgehog Preservation Society and the People's Trust for Endangered Species and on there they have loads of advice for land managers, they have advice for farmers, they have advice for gardeners, they have loads of information that we gathered for this podcast, all about the biology, what to feed them, everything you could possibly need to know is on there. Yes, I would add that in my usual daily trawling of Facebook, um, you see a lot of people asking questions about hedgehogs because obviously people do care so much about them. But like lots of things in gardening, you see a lot of myths perpetuated. And a lot of the people that I've seen have been asking questions about some of those myths. But the simplest way to get an answer is go on that website because it has probably the answer to every question that you could possibly have oh, yeah. about it, hedgehogs. Yeah, absolutely. Just never assume that what you read online on a meme somewhere is, is the correct information. Always double check it. If you're looking to buy somebody a gift for Christmas, then have a look at a couple of books. So there's The Hedgehog Book and A Prickly Affair, two books by ecologist Hugh Warwick. And then there's a classic book on the subject simply called Hedgehogs by Pat Morris. And links to all of those will be in the show notes. And I should also just say that fellow podcaster Jack Perks, who runs Bearded Tis podcast. And friend now. And friend, yeah. (laughs) He has just interviewed Hugh Warwick about hedgehogs on his own podcast as well. So go ahead and look at that one. Hugh Warwick is an absolute legend, it has to be said. I've heard of him on another podcast as well. He's He's funny. Absolutely brilliant. Doesn't mince his words, just entertaining and very knowledgeable definitely look him up oh and we should also say we actually were hanging out with jack the other night with somebody else from uh, a youtube channel called the wildlife garden project and they also have a video all about hedgehogs too yes this is laura turner she's been running the wildlife garden project for about 11 years and really strange but she also lives in nottingham this is just where it's happening isn't it so yeah we had uh, a few beers the other night and got to know each other which was really fun but yeah her video on hedgehogs is also absolutely fantastic and in fact the whole channel so definitely check that out My turn to take the native plant of the week and this week we are choosing something again that is looking good at the moment and that is the common teasel. It looks good all year round. That is true. This is a fantastic plant but it is its Latin name is Dipsacus felonum. I'll also mention just two other species which are very very closely related and and one of them will come up a bit later. There's also Dipsacus laciniatus or the cut leaf teasel, and that has really distinctively dissected leaves, and Dipsacus sativus, which is the cultivated form, which is also known as the fuller's teasel. But today we're talking about Dipsacus felonum, which is the common teasel. Now, its classification is a little bit confusing, and depending on what you read, it either sits in the Caprifoliaceae plant family or the Dipsicoideae plant family, or in another place, those two are basically joined together as a sort of joint family. What I will say is that it sits alongside a well-known garden plant, Scabius and Nausea, which I thought was quite interesting. I had no idea of its relationship with them. 
It's biennial and gets to a huge three metres tall, but usually is about 1.5 to 2.5 metres. Although I will say, again, I saw one that was probably about three and a half metres this year in, in one of my friend's gardens. It was absolutely phenomenal. It's erect and has side branches which are opposite each other and stems are rough to the touch with stiff prickles all the way along them. It has many, many small flowers, which are usually purple, but sometimes white. And these appear in late summer in July or August. They open in tufted bands around its prickly egg-shaped head or inflorescence, which can be up to about six centimetres long. And at its base has lots of spiny bracts as well. Just to recap, a bract is what is found around the base of a flower usually. And it's sort of a protective structure just to protect that flower The flowers open first from one central band, then sequentially open up and down the inflorescence, resulting in two separate bands of flowers that move away from each other. And you will see this when you when you see them in flower in the summer. Quite often they have sort of the top and the bottom of this of this inflorescence that's actually flowering. The leaves are also prickly and are found in opposite pairs up the stem. They're sessile, and that means that they don't have petioles, which is a fancy way of saying leaf stems. So they're attached directly to that stem. And curiously, with the teasel, they're fused as well. So they sort of create a cup where they meet around the stem. And here you will often find water collected. Yeah, it's like one giant diamond-shaped leaf, which the stem just goes right up through through the the middle of. Yeah. The leaves are lanceolate in shape, so they're sort of, yeah, like a lance and pointed at the end. And they're also spiny, so overall it's quite a spiny plant. It's a prickly character. It's a prickly character. Like hedgehogs. (laughs) Wow, we should have totally said that at the beginning. Nice. On those leaves, the spines are usually concentrated on the underside of their midrib. And the midrib is the name given to the central vein running down the middle of any leaf. The common teasel is native to Europe, including Britain, from Norway and then south and east to North Africa and West Asia as well. In terms of altitude, you're unlikely to find it growing above about 365 metres. It's also well known in the Americas, Southern Africa, Australia and New Zealand. But just on doing a bit of Googling, I found that it's not always a welcome plant in any of those places. So sorry yet again to anyone tackling this in any of their home countries if you're not in the UK. I think it's another one that we've introduced and it can very much smother out other native plants. But back to the UK, it's really common in England and it's rarer in Northern Ireland and Scotland. And you usually find it in open woodland, stream banks, roadside, scrub, railway banks and grassland. You see it all around, don't you? You do, yeah. Ex-industrial sites and things like that. It's not not particularly fussy, but I will talk about that later. The genus name Dipsacus comes from the Greek word for thirst, which is dipsa. And this refers back to the rainwater that is often seen collected in those cupped leaves that we talked about. Now, there's a bit of speculation about why that happens why does the plant have that form and collect water in the way it does and one of which is that it prevents aphids and other sap sucking insects from crawling up the stem the other is that insects actually get trapped and drown in this water-filled cup and this is something you might actually be able to go and observe if you if you find a teasel growing in the summer the theory goes that the plant is actually partly carnivorous this was first discussed by charles darwin's son francis and Experiments since then have actually fueled the debate, focusing on whether more insects trapped equated to a higher degree of seed production, i.e. a healthier plant. But 
So far, it's inconclusive and does require more science, even though that has now been studied for a whole century and a half. So <laughs> it really goes to show just how long some of these things take to work out. I like the mystery around the teasel. It's quite fun. Yeah. We were discussing that it can't be the hardest experiment to work out how to do, but apparently so. Well, There's real, you know, real yeah, yeah. sort of academic work has been done on it and it's, it's controversial still. I think the latest was in 2019. So yeah, it's still it's still being discussed and looked into, but more science required, as we like to say. Its most popular name is the teasel. And that comes from its early use of carding cloth. And that spiny seed head, or, you know, the inflorescence that I mentioned earlier, was actually used as a comb to clean and align cloth before it spun. And also when it's made to do what they call raise the nap or tease the fibres of finished fabrics. Give it that soft sort of brushed feel on the top. Yeah, like a fuzzy top hat. That's, that's, the, uh, that's how I imagine it. <laughs> that's quite a specific analogy. <laughs> For all of those of you out there who just feeling your top hats at home while listening to this podcast. <laughs> you never know how people dress. <laughs> like to think of everyone know. being very smart. Maybe Jacob Rees-Mogg listens in. Who knows? Ooh, dear. <laughs> I have a few it. things to say to him. <laughs> let's, let's not go there. The specific epithet philonum also indicates its use by fullers. And these are the people that are invo- involved in the cleaning and finishing of cloth. And these heads were mounted onto handles and then later onto actual rotary machines. So they mechanised the teasel head, which is fascinating. And actually, they were only replaced by the metal combs that some of you might recognise if any of you are cloth makers out there. They were only replaced in the 20th century. And some traditional spinners actually have found that the teasel is still a better tool when you're aiming for that specific finish. I will just mention, though, that it was actually the cultivated form, the Dipsacus sativus that I mentioned right at the beginning, that was better at this um, this teasing of the cloth because it actually has stouter and more recurved spines. And that was more commonly known as the fuller's teasel. So it specifically refers back to its use by fuller's. And in fact, it was that species that was imported to North America, which is why it's now such a problem there. So I'm sorry about that. More commonly now, I think, for most people listening, it's usually seen as a dried flower display. So it looks really fantastic. Do we, We've talk? got some in our kitchen. We do have some in our kitchen. Goodness. With eucalyptus, pussy willow and some moon honesty. pennies. Yeah, yeah honesty. No. Yeah. I mean, our house is a mess, but we do have very nice dried flower displays. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know why we do that. Anyway, it also has a few historic, but not necessarily recommended now, medicinal uses, like in the treatment of warts and jaundice, amongst other delightful things. I don't want to know how they treated warts with it. I don't know. I didn't go into too many details. So now on to the sexual antics of the teasel. Flowers of the teasel are hermaphrodite, which means each flower contains both the male and female organs, and it's self-fertile as well, so it doesn't necessarily require another plant to produce viable seed, but it is also insect-pollinated. The teasel is monocarpic, and that just means once it's flowered and gone to seed, it actually dies, so it's finished its role, if you like. 
And this usually happens over a period of two years, hence it being a biennial, so that's two years. But it can also be, like the cow parsley, a short-lived perennial. Over their short lives, their basal rosette of leaves are the thing that forms first once the seed is germinated. Yeah, that takes up the whole of the first year. It does. And they're quite low and flat against the ground, actually. Very. But they yeah. do have those prickles quite early on. So if they're you're... They're a bugger to stand on with bare feet. Have you done that? Yes. Oh, goodness. And this basal rosette of leaves quickly develops a thick, fleshy taproot, which allows for perination, which means it will live into the next year. Hence the name perennial for plants that live one year Thank to the next. Thank you very much. And in that second year, it's then very likely, if the conditions are right, to throw up that tall flowering stem with many terminal heads of those spiky eggs or inflorescences that I talked about. When that stem grows up, the basil leaves also tend to die off quite quickly. The tiny flowers, which individually are only about 10 to 15 millimetres long, that's long, not wide. They're actually, I think, smaller in their width when you're looking at them. They are crowded on that inflorescence and they have four petals and are only symmetrical in one line. And that is known as bilateral symmetry. Lots of other flowers have this like the foxglove. That's only symmetrical on one line as well. A plant, a single plant will have many of these inflorescences. The bristles that I mentioned on that inflorescence are actually the calyx teeth. So just to remind you what a calyx is, we are talking collectively about the sepals, which is not the same as a petal, which enclose or protect the flower on a plant. So on the teasel, each one of those has this little spine tip. And when you multiply that over the whole inflorescence, you get this sort of comb-like effect. When successfully pollinated, the resulting seeds mature in mid-autumn and I had some fun trying to pin down a single average number of seeds per plant. But actually what I got was just the most tremendous range. So I read that a plant could produce 2,000 seeds or 3,300 seeds or up to 850 seeds per flower head, which when you scale that up to 1 to 40 flower heads per plant means you can have up to 34,000 seeds. There so, aren't any with 40 seed heads per plant. Know. This is just what I read. If any of you have seen a teaser with 40 no. flower heads, <laughs> but still, many, many thousands of seeds are produced per plant is, is my summary. Of those many thousands of seed, there's a germination rate of between 30 and 80%, which is, again, quite a big range. And interestingly, I read a paper where they took seed from plants growing in different conditions, and it was found that plants, teasels that were grown in poorer nutrient soil, actually had more viable seeds, so a higher germination percentage. I don't know why. They, didn't, they also couldn't explain it, but I just thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, that's odd. And seeds which make it to the ground and are in the right conditions will germinate the following spring. But also if they don't do that, then they can remain viable for at least two years afterwards. So what pollinates it? When they're in flower, teasels are absolutely fabulous nectar and pollen sources. And you'll often see those inflorescences absolutely covered in bumblebees, butterflies and moths. Basically anything with a medium to long tongue because what was the flower length 10 to 15 millimeters is quite long for uh, for an insect yeah and because they're surrounded by that pointy spiky calyx on the outside yeah they've got to get in there haven't they yeah 
As well as nectar and pollen, though, the seed heads are really well known for being a great food source for birds, especially goldfinches. And this is what you'll see lots of wildlife gardeners planting teas or for, because you do get these beautiful charms of goldfinches all over your teas or heads at about this time of year, because they're obviously looking for food before the winter sets in. And the reason why they're able to get in is because they have thin and powerful beaks, which are specially adapted to teasing out seeds from the dried spiny inflorescence. So that's really, it's wonderful to watch when you get that. Not had any in our garden yet, feeding from the teasers. No, I've seen loads of those flying over the allotment though. And we have teasers up there. We do. From, you know, they were just there when we got there. So I'm hoping to see one one day. A few invertebrates also love eating the leaves of the common teasel, including the caterpillars of some butterflies, like the stunning marsh fritillary and the more widespread red admiral. There are also a few moths as well, like the mottled rustic macromoth and a couple of micromoths. And interestingly, the larvae of these micromoths actually feed on the pith of the seed head or on the seeds themselves. And because of this, they've even been considered as biological controls for the places that I mentioned where teasel is becoming a problem, but they haven't been um, accepted by the Environmental Protection Agency. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, more and more as we've learned of these moth caterpillars are, are eating seeds rather than leaves. I mm. just, yeah, I didn't even know that before we were doing this podcast. Nope, every day's a school day. As well as the moths, we've also got some flies. For example, the leaf mining fly Agramyza dipsaci. And if you look closely at a teasel's leaves, you might even be able to find evidence of its tunnelling. Activities. I have seen that. Well, there you go. That explains it. I didn't know that. You just got to remember that name. Agromyza dipsaci. I'm not going to remember that. <laughs> just know it's there. Yeah. Yeah. And there are also some beetles whose larvae eat the leaves, but they do tend to only be found in the south. So, yeah, quite a varied list of things that will use the teasel as a food source, which is really great. If you want to grow it at home, then... Common diesel tolerates a massive range of conditions. It can cope with poorly drained soils. It can cope with very extremely well-drained soils. And it can also grow on chalk, clay, loam or sand. So pretty much doesn't matter what kind of soil you have, the teaser will cope. They also don't particularly mind the pH either. So they're okay on acid, alkaline or neutral soils, which just adds to their tenacity. They're pretty good anywhere. They do prefer full sun and will flower better, but they'll also tolerate partial shade. And they also absolutely do not mind being exposed. So if you've got a particularly windy garden, as long as you're not above, you know, sort of, what do I say, 365 metres in altitude, then teasel is probably okay in your garden. They are tough as old boots. I <laughs> went out last winter um, take, doing some photography and I've got some really nice photos of it was blowing a gale, an absolute gale, and they were standing stock upright and they had like a snowdrift against the sides of them. And the flower heads were absolutely clogged with snow because they, they, they that sort of spiny shape captures the snow. So one half was, you know, on the snowy side was snow absolutely... Blizzarded. Blizzarded, yeah. <laughs> and the other side was, you know, just absolutely fine. Um, yeah, really, really gorgeous. So again, they look fantastic all year round. In the frost, they look amazing. They capture the snow. They're just beautiful when the spiders all make their webs in between and they mm. capture the dew in the spring. Just gorgeous. You're right. I did not sell their beauty enough in the beginning. 
I need to do that bit again. <laughs> no, Ben is right. They do look fantastic. They're a wonderful architectural plants. So if you are looking to have one in your garden, even if you've got a relatively formal garden, you could have a stand of these majestic teasels, which, as he just said, look great in the autumn as well when the, the low sunlight shining on them. They're just magic and they will happily seed around as well. Yeah, as and they're a, just great for filling a gap. And... You always hear people say, oh, yeah, leave some stems of your herbaceous plants because they're good for um, ladybirds to crawl into and things like that over the winter. And it really is true. Yeah. I did see it last year. Um, we'd already cut the heads off some for some reason. I don't know why. But I was looking inside the, some of the stems we left standing and big clusters of ladybirds right Aww. down in the middle of the stem. Yeah, and yeah. that's another reason why you don't want to cut all of your herbaceal, herbaceous perennials down. They're providing lots and lots of shelter. So how do you get it in your garden? Well, quite simply, just get yourself some seed and scatter it where you'd like it. And you could probably get away with doing it now. Um, well, actually, the seed stays viable for a couple of years, so you'd definitely get away with it now, but it probably wouldn't germinate until spring. Yeah, just don't forget. Don't just, forget it's there and think it's... Because it could look a bit like a sort of a thistle, I guess, yeah, if you... That's true. You know, when it when it first comes up, so... Yeah, just be careful. Just remember that you put it there on purpose. Yeah, go go online when you see things, uh, a, a base or rosette of leaves popping up all over your garden. Look online, check whether it's the teasel, and then you know whether or not you need to weed it out. Um, I don't want to put you off, but once you have them, you probably will have them forever because of this ability to seed. But we, like we do in the gardens we look after, we just take out the ones that we don't want. And yeah. they're really easy to take out once you know what they actually look like. It's just a case of selective weeding, isn't it? Yeah. They're not that, they're sort of, they, they, they keep coming, but they're not like... A problem. Yeah, they're not a problem. No. Yeah, they're really, they're really easy to, to just weed out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, alternatively, if you don't want to wait, because if you're sowing seed now, then you're not going to get flowers for another, not next year, but the year after... If you're more impatient than that, then you can actually go ahead and get some plugs and most wildflower specialists across the UK will probably sell um, teasel plugs. So look out for those. I couldn't see any cultivars apart from the Fuller's teasel, the Dipsacus sativus, but that is a different species. And unless you are making your top hats fuzzier at home, then I don't see why you'd necessarily want that. They do look exactly the same. But then when the wild one is so beautiful, then why would you need to? Yeah, and don't forget the wild ones grow all over the place and it is perfectly legal to go out and collect seed heads yourself. You know, if you've got a nearby bit of scrub ground or something and there's loads of teasels going up, go out now, get a, a paper bag, stick it over the seed head, cut the whole thing off, just allow the seeds to come out in that, in that bag. They'll just naturally drop down if you hang it upside down and you've got free seed. That's if the uh, goldfinches haven't already raided them. Yeah, don't take the whole lot. Yeah, <laughs> let the finches have a bit. Well, that just about wraps up today's Native Plant of the Week and indeed today's episode. Hope you've enjoyed it. Yep, coming up in the next few episodes... Next time round, we have our book club and we are talking about a book called Pollinators and Pollination by Professor Jeff Ollerton. That's published by Pelagic and you can find links to that in the show notes. We're partway through that book at the moment and it's a hard one 
not because it's difficult to read, but it's going to be a hard one to do a show on because there is so much stuff. Summarising uh, what is essentially someone's entire life's work of research. <laughs> so yeah. I hope I do Jeff Ollerton justice. Yeah, I mean, it's he, an it, incredible book yeah I, it's, I, i'm actually finding it quite hard to read as well because i keep stopping and shouting ben come and listen to this it's yeah. amazing so yeah uh, well, we've got a week or so before we're going to record next yeah. so better hurry up <laughs> yeah so that's coming up next time after that we have our next guest and that is entomologist dr ian bedford who, lovely chap yeah fantastic interview it was and he is the ex-head of entomology for the john innes center but now he goes around garden clubs teaching everybody all about how to protect insects and invertebrates in their gardens and he's also really good at explaining why we shouldn't be using pesticides and all things like that in the garden but from a really scientific angle he's actually gonna explain how things work in the garden you know as you build up these sort of food webs and all that sort of stuff to do the the work of the biological control for you if you'd like to do one thing to help out the podcast this time round, then please go ahead and recommend us onto new listeners you can do that by leaving us a review on itunes something like that which helps us be automatically mentioned on to new people but yeah if you know anybody else who would be interested in the sort of advice that we talk about on this podcast do go ahead and send it to them and in exchange we'll be answering your questions in the next q a yes if you've got any general wildlife gardening questions nice and juicy ones please then do get in touch and you can email us on the wildlife garden at hotmail.com or you can get in touch on Twitter, which is the Wild GDN, and on Facebook, which is just the Wildlife Garden Podcast. So please do send us a message or an email with your gardening questions, and we plan to do another YouTube Q&A session, which I really enjoyed last time. Yeah, that'll be towards the end of November or early December. We haven't quite set the date yet. We'll be doing that to answer your questions that you send in over the next couple of weeks. So with that said, keep gardening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye! Bye! Bye!